Amen. Good morning. It is a genuine joy to be with you today. I've known Pastor Justin and Pastor Casey for years and years, and so to come out and meet your other pastors uh, and to see their ministry here is a true joy to me. Uh, let me also uh, give honor to where honor is due for the scriptures say to do so. Uh, you have a wonderful band. <laughs> you really do. You should be grateful for that. Yeah, you can clap for them. Uh, that band would be the envy of many other churches. Well, let's turn our attention now back to the word of God. Pray with me one more time. Lord, as we bow before you, continue to bow before you and worship you now in giving attention to your word. We pray that you give us ears to hear. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of everyone's heart would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, this summer, uh, I had the privilege of doing something I, I really wasn't intending to do. It really wasn't on my wish list, and that is I was able to visit Paris. My wife wanted to go, uh, and as a good husband, at least I try to be, uh, we, we went to Paris uh, at her desire. But I was also uh, greatly impressed with the city when I, when I was there. I'm glad that I went. And if you've ever been to Paris, or even if you haven't, you probably know that they major on their history. Everything is historical. The museums there are all about the history, uh, locally and globally. The monuments, the city, they're very proud of telling their stories uh, about Napoleon and Napoleon III. I don't know what happened to Napoleon II. They just talk about Napoleon I and Napoleon III, but they, they love to boast on what these, these world, uh, world changers have done. And of course, it brought to life my experience because I could see the, the monuments and parts of the city and the, and the museum and think, oh, because I know the history now, that's more interesting to me. However, on the flight home, I thought to myself, what does it matter to me? <laughs> I'm not French. I don't have French heritage. I don't have French ancestors. And so while that's very meaningful to them and it was informative for me, what, what does it really matter, the French history, to me? I think sometimes we can look at the Bible that way, can't we? What, what, what do these old stories really matter? People who lived thousands of years ago in another place, spoke other languages, some strange customs and culture as we just read. What does this really matter to me? And here's the point I want to make from today's text for us today. Here's the point I want to make, that the Lord has audacious plans to save the world, and he will only do it through Israel. He will only do it through Israel. Therefore, Israel's history is world history, and Israel's history is salvation history. If the Lord does not accomplish his purposes of salvation, through Israel, he has no plan B. There's no fallback plan. This is it. Salvation comes through this program or it doesn't come at all. And so in the context of this world history, this salvation history, nothing will be too difficult for the Lord to accomplish his purposes. Nothing will be too difficult for the Lord. Consider the story that we just heard. Uh, Abraham is visited by the Lord and told that 
Sarai, his wife, will get a name change. And the reason for the name change, going to change the name to Sarah there in verse 15, is to commemorate this moment. What is the moment? She's going to conceive and have a child. Now, uh, that happens all the time in our world, except for one detail. She's 90 years old. That's nine zero. Did I say that clearly? 90. Not 19, 90 years old. And Abraham is 99 years old. And it's not for lack of trying that they haven't had a child already. They have tried. And they've been unsuccessful. And so in previous chapters, as I know you're going through the book of Genesis, so you already know this story, Sarah has the solution. You know, you have no heir to your house. Abraham, you need a son. Why don't you take Hagar, uh, a maiden in your house, as your concubine, as it were, and bear a son through her. And he does. He has Ishmael. He has Ishmael. But now the Lord says, that will not suffice. The son of the promise must come through your distinct wife, through Sarah. And that's why in verse 17, Abraham falls down on his face and he laughs. He laughs. Because can he really conceive a child when he's 99? Can Sarah really have a child when she's 90 years old? Now, a small detail in the text we need to note here in verse 17 is that it says he laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? He doesn't say this out loud, nor does he laugh out loud. It's not as though he laughed out loud and then he spoke to himself. No, those verbs go together. He laughed and spoke internally to himself. So he has this private moment of doubt where he cannot understand uh, what the Lord is doing. But the Lord replies in verse 19, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Isaac. Now this must have stunned Abraham because the word Isaac means laughter. So he laughs in his own mind and speaks his doubt and the Lord says you will have a son and you'll remember forever your skepticism of the plan of God and name him Isaac. That must have startled him. Anyway, the story goes on in verse 22 and following that, the, that Abraham takes Ishmael after all and uh, goes ahead and circumcises him because that's what was commanded just in the previous chapter. It says there in verse uh, 23, he circumcised him that very day as the Lord told him to do. So he's faithful. He follows through on this plan with Ishmael. However, Ishmael will not be the promised seed of the covenant promises and purposes of redemption of God. Then in chapter 18, we return to Sarah. We return to Sarah. The Lord now comes back to Abraham. It says in verse 1, 18 verse 1, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Uh, he's there with a couple others. Are they angels? You know, we're not quite clear. It's shrouded in mystery who these people are. And Abraham is running all over the place. Let me get some water. Let me get some bread. Let me get some, some meat. And he comes on out and he serves them. And notice what is said in verse nine. This is very subtle. The, the, the text of Genesis loves to be coy and subtle about things. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Well, Sarah, that's not her name. Oh, but it is. We just changed her name, remember? Because she will have a son named Isaac. This is the Lord now coming back and doubling down on his purposes to bring her a child in her old age. She overhears what they're talking about, that she will have a child. And then in verse 12, 
Sarah laughs. Sarah laughs. And again, notice what it says. She laughed to herself. She laughed to herself. This is all internal dialogue. Yet the Lord says in verse 13 to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? So the Lord has perfect knowledge, not only of what's happening on the ground, but also what's happening in people's minds and in people's hearts. He asks the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah denies it, verse 15, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. I would be too if someone suddenly knew my internal dialogue and called me on it. And he said, no, but you did laugh. But you did laugh. This lengthy story pivots on the change of Sarah's name. You're no longer Sarai, you're Sarah, to commemorate your conception of a son, even at the age of 90. But this, let's be frank, is ludicrous. It's laughable. Abraham laughs and Sarah laughs. I was recently reminded by a professor of mine of a Far Side comic. Do you all remember the Far Side? Very witty cartoons that capture in just one picture the whole idea. And there are two spiders at the bottom of a slide, a sliding board on a playground. And they're, one's on one side and one's on the other. And they're spinning this web at the bottom of the slide. And one says to the other, if we pull this off, we'll eat like kings. But of course, it's ridiculous, and that's why you laugh. As much as you might be afraid of spiders, and you may not want spider webs at the bottom of your slide, little children, nonetheless, it won't be strong enough to catch you. You're coming down at some speed, you're going to go right through that silk. That's what's going on here. This is ridiculous, that the Lord would, would impregnate someone who's in their 90s. But it's in verse 14. The great pinnacle of the story. Do you see it? 1814. This is the question that, the, that, 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 that Genesis wants us to walk away with. Is anything really too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too difficult? You may have a footnote in your Bible that says, another translation for the word hard or difficult is wonderful. Wonderful. Beyond comprehension. Supernatural, as it were. Well, let's, let's dive back into the story. Let's, let's, let's meet this mother of kings. Let's meet this mother of kings. Again, notice in verses 15 and 16, she gets her name changed. And it says in verse 16, I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Do you see the plural? We're not just talking one child here. We're talking nations. Listen to this. Kings of people shall come from her. Through this one son is going to start an expansion of God's purposes through the descendants of Abraham such that nations and kings will come. However, it must be noted that what makes Isaac special is there in verse 19. Do you see that in verse 19? You will call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then again in verse 21. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, 
whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. While many peoples and kings of people will come through Sarah, the point of the covenant here, as I know you've discussed in chapter 17 and 15 in this sermon series, is that Isaac and subsequently Jacob will be set aside to be a special blessing to the rest of the people. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is a promise that the Lord makes with Abraham and his descendants, but it doesn't terminate with them. It's not just for them. Hey, I'm going to be really kind to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. I'm going to truly bless them. But in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The goal here is not only to bless Israel, but to bless all of the world. The goal in the Old Testament is that through that one nation, all the globe will be blessed. That's actually the whole point of the book of Genesis, to tell you the truth. That's the, that's the spine on which everything else hangs in the book of Genesis. Uh, sure, you remember that in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve fall from the presence of God, from the grace of God, and uh, through their disobedience to God, so they're kicked out of the presence of God, expelled from the Garden of Eden, and promised that they and all their posterity will someday die. And that's why death is coming for us all, because of our disobedience and our sinfulness. However, the Lord also promises right away that one of the descendants of Eve, nonetheless, will live a perfect life, reverse the curse of sin, and bring us back into the presence of God and grant us again eternal life. It's cryptic, it's subtle, but it's there. And then in chapter 12, it's not just one of these descendants, it's specifically through Abraham. And that's why I said earlier that, that it's this redemption, it's this goal of the Lord to restore us to his presence and give us life, to forgive us of our sins and restore us to his presence. It's that goal that makes the history of Israel so important. This is why it matters. It's the one and only plan of redemption. That when the Lord accomplishes through Abraham and his children, his purpose is the rest of the world will be blessed. The rest of the world will bring back into the presence of God. And it really matters for Christians to know this story, to know the story of Israel, to know of God's providence and care and that it's true. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord in accomplishing his purposes. And here's why. Here's why. We all organize our lives by stories. Stories have a way of organizing and orienting us. You don't know where you're going. and You don't know where you are unless you know where you've been and what's the plan going forward. And in Israel's history, we see that very story that I just mentioned, that there is a creation and there is a God who we just sang is holy. And as Pastor Scott just mentioned, is a judge, therefore, but through Israel, he has prepared the way so that the Savior can come into the world. That it's through Israel that Jesus is born. He lives a perfect life. He dies an atoning death on the cross to forgive you of your sins. And then on the third day, he's raised back to life. And now he gives his Holy Spirit to anybody who repents of their sins and puts their trust in him. They're given new life and the promise of their own resurrection. And now we wait for him to return from heaven the sky will be rolled back. 
The great judgment will commence and all of those in Christ will be saved eternally. You see, that's a story. That's a story. And if that's your story, if you are in Christ, that is your story. And that orients you, that tells you there's a purpose for creation. There's truly something wrong with humanity. Jesus is the solution and I'm part of that narrative. It orients and organizes our lives. But there are some today. There are many today who tell a different story. Many different stories. But one of them goes like this. You came from nothing. You are temporarily a sophisticated and complicated ensemble of atoms and electrons and nutrients, but soon that will dissolve back into nothing and you will go back into the nothing. And that's the story. Nothing, you, nothing. And not only you, but all of humanity actually, if the evolutionary tale is at all to be expounded, humanity will also someday just go extinct. One philosopher said, life is nothing more than a match struck in the dark and blown out again. Soon the lonely planet will cool, all life will cease, and it will all be as though it had never happened. That's a story. People tell that story. They tell that story in a variety of ways. And our children hear that story. And they live in and they're oriented by that story. I would submit to you, my friends, that the biblical story is the true story and a more hopeful story. That we don't come from nothing. We come from God. And we return to God. And in between, God is sovereign and working hard. Nothing is too hard for him to bring about the redemption that we need from our sins. The biblical story is the true story. And that's why we need to hear it. We need to hear the story of Sarah, Sarai, who becomes Sarah. And she laughs, and Abraham laughs, and we all laugh. But keep reading. Isaac will be born, and the story will go on. And you too will conclude, hmm, maybe nothing is impossible for God. Well, that is the mother of kings. Let's now meet the father who is faithful. Let's meet the father who is faithful. This is also very confusing for him as well. I mean, look at verse 18, 17, 18. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That's Abraham's way of saying, oh, wow, it would be great to have a son through Sarah, but why not Ishmael? In other words, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. I've already laughed. I've already doubted. But Ishmael, here, here's another solution. So this whole thing is very confusing for, for Abraham because he can see a path forward. And the Lord says that's not the path, path forward. Nonetheless, in verses 22 and following, Abraham follows through on what the Lord told him to do. He circumcises himself and Ishmael and everybody else in the house because he just told to in the earlier part of chapter 17. And so it says there in verse 23, he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. 
as God had said to him. I have to admit, I wrestled with this all week long. Why in the world is Ishmael circumcised if it's a sign of that covenant I just mentioned and he's not part of it? Well, sometimes the Lord's will is secret, but it's always good and it's always right. And obedience is always commended. I think Abraham is being commended here that despite the confusion, he does as the Lord tells him to do. And I think that level of confusion is not uncommon. Are there forms of faithfulness the Lord is calling us to, calling you to, that may not be clear in our minds? In other words, do you keep the Lord's day holy? Do you keep the Lord's day holy? Do you know why the Lord's day is called holy? What about tithing? Do you know why we're instructed to tithe? Well, we could have sermons on those topics as well. But really, it may not matter if you know why. If the Lord has called you to it, keep the Lord's day holy. Paul says that's the first commandment with a promise, so that your children may live long in the land. Or to give a tenth to the ministry of God. The Bible says over and over again, everything belongs to God already. The earth is mine and the fullness thereof. I give it to the children of men. And he says, put 10% back into ministry. Put 10% back to the priests and to the church. Is God calling you to that kind of faithfulness? I think it's also often very difficult to forgive people. I mean, think about this for a second. Peter asked Jesus, if a brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? You know the story? I imagine Peter thought he was being pious. Seven times. This guy offends me. Seven times. I'm going to free him all seven times. That's a lot, right? But that's got to be the limit. <laughs> Jesus says, no, <clears throat> 70 times seven. You should forgive him 70 times seven. That is a relentless forgiveness of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I know, people can wound each other. People can offend and generally harm each other. And forgiveness can be very difficult. And those wounds can be real. But Jesus is calling you to think about how God has forgiven you in Christ. God has forgiven you in Christ. You therefore, can forgive others, if you think deeply on that first point. Sometimes, however, I think we don't forgive one another, not because the wound was so offensive, but because we're just prideful. It's fun, isn't it? Tastes good to hold a little back. Don't grant that forgiveness. You hold a little leverage over somebody as long as you don't forgive them. The Lord says forgive 70 times seven times. You know, here's another one. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, let all of your speech be edifying. All of your speech be edifying. All of your speech be filled with grace. That everything you say would glorify God and build other people up. That's what edify means. Edify means build others up. I wonder how good we are at that. That everything we say glorifies God and edifies other people. How common is it that we like to use words that build ourselves up, 
promote ourselves, not the Lord, and in the process, tear others down, either to their face or behind their back. It's a habit we human beings seem to have. And so whether it's honoring the Lord's day, tithing, forgiving others, words of grace and edification towards others, let's be like Abraham. Let's do, as it says here, as the Lord said to him. One of my favorite authors is John Bunyan. He's the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, 17th century preacher in England at a tumultuous time in England. And he was arrested for preaching the gospel, the true gospel. The king had a preference for a slightly false gospel at the time. And John Bunyan is preaching the true gospel. And he's thrown in jail for that. He's thrown in jail for that. Now, John Bunyan had many, many children. And a wife who is now at home caring for these children all by herself. You don't think he thought about that every day? You don't think that ripped his heart in half? I mean, this is a time in, in history where you don't have the modern conveniences like we have today. It was up to her, his wife, alone to care for these children. And one of those children was blind. Particularly near, he wrote in other works, and, and dear to his heart. And he thought about her every single day while he's in prison. The king one day sent an emissary to the prison where he's being held and said, if you stop preaching the gospel, we will let you out. He said, if you let me out of here, the first person I see, I'm gonna preach to them the gospel. Because the Lord had called him to that. And while living in a fallen world, some things are confusing and pulling us in different directions, John Bunyan was committed to do as the Lord had said, to do as the Lord had said. Well, that's our father who is faithful. Let's turn now to a son. Let's turn back to that son, the son who will make you laugh. In the first eight verses, it's interesting that in the ancient Near Eastern context like this, when people come around to your tent and you receive them with food the way Abraham did, it's a mark of friendship. It's a mark of friendship. That it, God comes himself. It says in verse, eight, verse one, 18, verse one, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. This is the kind of God we have. We have a God who wants intimacy and closeness with our people. And I think these three passages are running together like this. The Lord makes promises, and he's calling you to believe them, not laugh at them. He's calling you to obey them, not justify them in your mind while you don't have to honor the Lord's day or forgive people or whatever excuses we might make in our hearts. And when we live this way, when we hear the word of the Lord and we trust and we obey, there's a nearness and sweetness and fellowship with the Lord that he gives us purely by grace, purely by grace. <clears throat> because Abraham is not perfect and the Lord is still near to him. <clears throat> but all of this is a transition to get back to verse nine. Again, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? In calling her Sarah, not Sarai, the Lord is reminding Abraham of the promise, of the promise, that through Isaac, your covenant will be named, and through Isaac will the world be redeemed. And this is the key, that the plan comes through Isaac, and that is the only plan. 
But we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, why does the Lord make it so hard on himself? Couldn't Sarah have had a child decades earlier? Why does the Lord do this? Making it increasingly difficult on himself. And you probably already thought, you probably already thought this somewhere in today's service. The Lord seems to do this a lot, doesn't he? There's the story of Rachel, which is later in the book of Genesis, but maybe you already know it, who also can't conceive. You know the story of uh, Hannah, Samuel's wife, in chapter one of Samuel. She can't conceive. Suddenly she does. And of course, we actually already spoke of her today. This is the story of Mary. Mary herself is a virgin, which is actually a larger obstacle to overcome than just barrenness or age. And the fact is, this is the Lord's calling card. This is the Lord's calling card. He likes to stack the deck against himself so that when he acts, you will know it was him and him alone. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, Luke 1, 37, at the announcement of Jesus' birth, uh, Mary says, how can this be? Because I have never known a man. The angel says to her, is anything too difficult for the Lord? The exact same words as what we read right here. What's the point? The point is, the beginning of the story of Israel is the beginning of Jesus' story. It's all preparatory so that when we see the birth of Jesus, we reflect on the history of Israel. What is that great blessing that God wants to give to the world through Israel but Jesus? And so with the coming of Jesus, his birth echoes the story of Sarah so that we will remember in Jesus' life as well and our own lives that nothing is impossible for God and that he will do it without our help. That's the point. It is too difficult for you, Abraham. It is impossible for you, Mary. But nothing is impossible for the Lord. And I like to do things this way through all kinds of difficulties and impossibilities so that you will know when it happens, the Lord has done it. I was also reminded of a Charlie Brown uh, cartoon this week. This one's great. Charles Schultz uh, was a Christian and he embedded his cartoons with some, some deep theological insights. And in this particular one, uh, it's a cold day and Charlie is outside. It's snowing and there's ice everywhere. Uh, and he's got all of his clothes on, you know, like kids have. Uh, like uh, so, so many layers of clothes that you can't, you can't really move except walk. And of course, what happens to Charlie? There's always something... <laughs> There's always some kind of a disappointment for Charlie. And he falls over. He slips on the ice and he's on his back. And he's, you know, imagine me lying on my back. He's got all these clothes on. He can't, he can't get enough leverage to get up or he can't roll over to push himself up. He's stuck. He's stuck there on the ice, on his back. And it goes on for several frames where he's moaning. He's going to die. He's going to freeze out here. Good grief, of course, he says, right? And along comes Snoopy. Of course it's Snoopy, right? Snoopy doesn't say anything, never says anything. Puts his head down on Charlie's head and just pushes him off the ice. And Charlie says, this is the most embarrassing moment of my life. 
That's what's going on here. That's the point here. Charlie can do nothing. He's totally dependent on Snoopy. Abraham can do nothing. Hannah can do nothing. Mary can do nothing. You can do nothing. But nothing is impossible for God. But nothing is impossible for God. And I want you to think, I want you to think about the promises that God has made to his people. In Mark 2, chapter 5, it's very simple. He simply says to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And some of us think of that promise of forgiveness and we say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know my sins. Some things are too great to be forgiven. And Jesus says, stop right there. My cross, you're you're diminishing the greatness of the cross when you say there's something I can't forgive. Nothing is too great. Nothing is too wonderful. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He can forgive your sins. And then when he does, the fancy word at the seminary is sanctification. Sanctification means growth in Christ-likeness. Once he saves you, he doesn't say, good, got you out of hell, now to the next person. No, he stays on you. And he grows you in Christ-likeness and conforms you into his image by the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, we might be tempted to say, Not this heart. Uh, Do you know how covetous and envious, slothful, lustful I am inside? What a mess I've made of my own Christian life. Jesus says, is anything too difficult for me? Be not unbelieving, but believing. Or how about this one? That when you die, Your story's not over. Jesus was raised from the dead and he promises you that when you die, you will be brought back to life. He who believes in me, though he perish, he will live, Jesus said. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? When you're in the last week and the last day or the last hour of your life, if you're fortunate enough, I don't know, is that fortune, to see your death coming. Some people die suddenly. If you, if you die not suddenly, and you see your, your, your mortality closing in on you, this is the question you need to ask for yourself. That is the moment of testing. Death is when everything else is stripped away, and nothing is left. That's the moment when you have to ask yourself, is anything too difficult for the Lord? I am the resurrection and the life. He says, then he raises Lazarus and he can raise you. What about the return of the Lord? What about the return of the Lord? Something no one has ever seen before. That nature will be rolled back and there will be a new creation. A new creation in which righteousness alone dwells and there is no more sin. Just a forgiven people in their resurrected bodies living the human life as they were originally attended in the Garden of Eden. No one has ever seen that before. But is anything too difficult for the Lord? Now we have to be careful here. We have to be careful. In America, I have noticed, 
and we seem to want to export this to other countries, a kind of, you know what it's called, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That God wants to give me a better job, he wants to give me a healthier body, and he wants to give me riches. And if I can just close my eyes tight enough and hold my hands tight enough and faith up enough faith, God will give me whatever I ask for. After all, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. We gotta be careful here. The Lord is guaranteed, that's the point here, to deliver on his promises, if indeed they are promises. We can't put on God, this is the promise I want you to make. (laughs) No, we have to think of the promises God has actually made. Those are the promises that we can are guaranteed. Now, I believe God cares about your finances. He cares about your health. He cares about your job or whatever it is you may also want from the Lord. And you should pray in faith. Jesus is happy to give his people the things that they need and that they want for human flourishing. And so when we lean upon him and we ask upon him in prayer, he is glorified because we're counting on him. But there's no promise in the scriptures that all those things will be yours. To the contrary, I just said, all those things will be stripped away. It's called the moment of death. And that's when the real promises of Jesus need to take root in our hearts. Can he raise the dead? Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. It was in May that I was in France. It's now September. And for all the history I learned, I don't remember any of it. (laughs) It was so clear in my mind when I was there. It made sense to me, and I was looking at the monuments and the architecture and the museums. But maybe that doesn't matter. But the story of Israel and episodes like this, where the Lord does laughable things to demonstrate his complete sovereignty, and that his commitment to work through Israel to give the world a redeemer and save a bunch of Gentiles like we are is a story we have to know. It's a story we have to remember. It's a story that will sustain us because the upshot of all of this is confidence. The upshot is confidence that you are forgiven. You are being sanctified. Some of you faster than others, but it is happening. He will raise the dead. He will return. And in the meantime, what's 10%? (laughs) What's one day out of seven? The Lord asks so little of us. We can be like Abraham in doing as God had said. Because he, God, who brought his son into the world through a 90-year-old woman and through a virgin, will never revoke his promises. If they start with such difficulty, they will be seen to completion equally, despite whatever difficulty. So the answer is no. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Please pray with me. Almighty God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We give you praise that you are speaking God, that you are uh, the true God who works in history and gives us these true historical accounts of Abraham 
and Sarah to buoy up our faith, to give us confidence, and to remind us that you are working in the details and nothing is too difficult. And therefore, we trust that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen and amen.